Igawau acknowledges the traditional owners of the land upon which we record, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Wadawurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Good morning, everybody. I'm Good Brother. And welcome to Ego Hour, the show where we deliver objectively true film reviews. Start the time before me, Tom. These reviews are non-negotiable and nondescript. So, let's... Wait, hold on a minute, Tom. I think something's wrong. I think your entropy oh. is, 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 is reversed. I think it's inversed. Can you do something about that? Yes, yeah, you. Your entropy, you're backwards. Are you there? Hello? Better? Okay, better. Great. All I was saying was that the um the reviews are gonna stand up in a court of law, any film school student. Non negotiable, non refundable, non descript. All good? Alright. Yes. Let's talk about Tenet. Released on the twenty sixth of August twenty twenty in the UK, September the third, twenty twenty in the US, and the twenty sixth of August twenty thirty one in Victoria, Australia, Tenet is Christopher Nolan's eleventh movie and ninth with Warner Bros. The film, also known by its Colombian release title, Sci-Fi James Bond the Eco-Warrior, follows a protagonist, the protagonist, as he participates in a variety of large-scale action sequences in an attempt to stop the ending of the beginning of the world before it is ended by a guy who holds the key to going into the past and changing the future. The film was made on a budget of $200 million and, as of making this pod, has made $357.8 million worldwide. The film is unintentionally assumed a highly important role in society as the first and main tentpole film to be released in cinemas in 2020 during the COVID-19 pandemic. Tenet clocks in with a two hour and 30 minute runtime and may just make you wonder, no gino eog si kuf et tao. Did you catch that last one? Yeah, that sounded great. Thank you. Nice. All right, we have... Two special guests to introduce to this one to help us try and decipher this film. Boy, I got a surprise for you tonight. You got a guest. Welcome, my guest. Say hello to a guest. Boy, I got a surprise for you tonight. You got a guest. Welcome, my guest. Say hello to a guest. Um, the first one is. Someone very close to Tom and I. He's been with us for years, you know, as long as I can remember. And his name is Rob. How are you, Rob? <laughs> oh, very well. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, Honoured to have that title as well. Thank you. And the other guy is our brother. So, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Welcome to yeah, the pod, thanks. Ben. <laughs> Thank you. Also good to be here. Long time listener. So excited well, to be actually, part of the magic. Long time member of Ego Problem. <laughs> Uh, it's kind of Founding member. a bit, a bit <laughs> scandalous, but I think it's time for the big reveal, which is that Ego Problem was actually founded by Ben and I as a uh, in response to the, well, we thought music was easy and we thought we'd give that a test and <laughs> turns out it's not so easy. Je- jealousy of Nick 
Nicholas to Tony, basically. Exactly. He was what... he was launching into high f- like fame and fandom, and we're like, I want a piece of that. And yeah, <laughs> turns out you can't produce music with no experience using uh, what's it called, Ableton or Pro Tools or anything. And you might need a little bit of fair fairy god brother to step in and do some mixing for you so <laughs> what about garage band on mac Matt? that's right that's true not even mac get it on the ipod <laughs> yeah the ipod touch it's all a man needs look i'm excited this is this is a, another first for the pod not just launching the uh pod career of ben what what alias do you want to go by ben by the way uh that is a good question I don't really know. That is a good question. Okay. Today he is Neb. <laughs> okay, got Neb. Yeah, yeah Neb. Uh, that's fitting. So this is our first ever fast-tracked pod. So um, due to, I don't know, I suppose a lack of promotional preparation and stuff like that, the podcast is in fact many weeks ahead of its release date at the moment. Um, and so many of the episodes we recorded earlier in 2020 haven't in fact been released yet. We're only up to ep three live released but we are fast tracking this pod because tenant is a culturally significant film and well maybe we'll talk about it but we want to capitalize on the discussion around this film so if you like tenant if you don't like tenant if your friends like tenant if your mum likes tenant this is the pod because we're gonna we're gonna crack this film surely your mum loves tenant so much I think she, uh, our mum does love tennis. Yeah, she did enjoy it. <laughs> she told me. Um, she told me she uh, couldn't stop thinking about it at work for a day or two, three days later. So that's something. That's brilliant. All right, so we'll do a quick check in with everybody before we dive in. Hey girl, I know it's been a while, but uh, I just need to ask you something. We'll start with Neb. How are you, Neb? I'm doing well. I'm currently on holidays, so just living the good life, watching movies, starring on a podcast, you know, all the good things. That's what we like to hear. How are you today? Uh, how about... What do I steal you a bit? How am I? How am I? <laughs> Thanks for asking. I'll go, for, I'll go next. I'm good. I'm deep in a uni intensive, but I always find room to squeeze in the pod, and that's why the pod is so early. We're starting at nine o'clock this morning, which is unprecedented hence the good morning at the start but i'm happy to be here and excited to have this great range of people to talk about tenant um how are you doing rob shaggy hess royale how are you uh, very well thank you um just yeah still my body is recovering because i've been getting on the beers very <laughs> regularly um just because of course we've no we've now with no COVID in melbourne you know, it could the third wave could be around the corner, so you've got to make hay while the sun shines. Drink every so. beer like it's your last. Is that the you one? You bloody know it, mate. You bloody know <laughs> it. And Lil Silky, last but not least. I'm great. I'm. I feel the again. I feel the energy in this post lockdown world. I'm getting around, seeing all my pals and my brothers, and it's, <laughs> it's exciting. It was just so good to go to the movies. That is the beginning of the pod, I suppose. But yeah, this will segue right into us first cinema experience since COVID. I'm, I imagine for all of us, right? 
Oh, I went in the lock in the last time the lockdown was eased in Melbourne in right. June. I went to see a few movies then. Um, but yeah, since then, since the lockdown after that, yes, first first time. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. for for me at least, because um, we all saw it in. We went on a family excursion and we went to IMAX, which was pretty nuts. And I, I haven't, don't think I've been to IMAX since I was like maybe a school excursion and you watch something about dinosaurs or something. So it was like crazy. And just like the first opening scene or whatever scene at that big on the screen is definitely a big way to jump back into going to the movies, I would say. Yeah. Um, the IMAX, uh, well, Ben and I had only um, gone to IMAX, well, in memory. Once recently, we went to Apocalypse Now last year. We bought our IMAX memberships for this year. We didn't get to use them. (laughs) Um, So it was good to finally get to IMAX. Um, I just want to quickly reel off some IMAX facts because IMAX is unreal. At the beginning of our IMAX screening, Christopher Nolan popped in and he appeared on screen and he goes, Hello, Melbourne. Uh, Thank you for listening, uh, watching. He said, let me see those hands. (laughs) Um, Meal. And he recorded a unprepared message where he talked about how it's his favorite way to watch Tenant. So um, he also said it's how he filmed it, right? Yeah, um, you see that in the film that certain scenes aren't IMAX, I suppose. Uh, but seeing the film on a film print uh, is very lovely. So let me just say, uh, IMAX for the listeners is fifteen perf. And what that means is when you think of a film strip, think of the or the film that goes into your stills camera. Uh, a perf is just like a measurement for how wide it is because the more wide it is, the more perforations you need to pull it along. Um, according to this information, um, IMAX is the equivalent of 18K pixels, um, which is unreal, of course. And then a 4K uh, digital is... Sorry then a non so the IMAX digital doesn't reach the 18k pixels of the IMAX film apparently um, film is supposedly the the most efficient way of storing information and color information but the biggest thing about IMAX that stands out is how tall it is um, it actually is I think it is 4.3 oh no it's 1.43 to 1 and it's just really tall like the uh, the height of it is so much more than this cinematic crop that you used to see. And so that stood out immediately to me. Is that true for you guys? Yeah. I, I Getting kind of stuck into the film, um, the opening sequence definitely had a big impact on me. Just seeing it that, that large, it's almost ridiculous, but it's like cool. And I think you can definitely see like with a Nolan film, it's like this is what it's meant to be like. It's going to the movies. And obviously this film is carrying a lot more weight now because of all the COVID stuff and are we even going to have normal cinema releases for films at the moment. And you can see how much that this is the sort of film that really needs to be seen in a cinema. You know, it's an experience and like you're there, it almost changes the way you watch it because it's like just so big and loud and, and intense, you know. Now, I've got a question to interject. I've meant to ask this to more people. I think it was just the cinema that I was in and the projectionist must have cooked it up or something. (laughs) But it seemed like, tell me if I'm wrong, but it's like from my experience, 
almost every shot for like the first like 30, 40 minutes of the movie seemed slightly blurred. Like a film school student on their DSLR camera that's accidentally put it on manual focus instead of auto. And like it was annoying me so much. And like I think maybe they fixed it like halfway through the movie unless it was deliberately blurred. Did you notice any blurred shots at the start? Like nothing being truly in focus? Was it an artsy decision or was that my projectionist being a dog? I think it was a bit of a dog act. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> imagine <laughs> triggered me. So imagine convincing your IMAX. producers you're gonna shoot on IMAX. So like the most expensive <laughs> film, you have to carry around these huge cameras everywhere, and you're like, and they're like, okay, okay, Christopher, we're gonna shoot on IMAX, and then he's like, and I want to blur it by just like a few, <laughs> just a little bit, just not enough so the to audience orient the audience. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought he might have done that. <laughs> Uh, yes, I believe we did not watch that version of that cut of the film. <laughs> the director's cut. We watched the standard <laughs> release. <laughs> um, what about you, Ben? What were your initial thoughts? Uh, same as you. Like seeing it, like the projector in IMAX is so big. It's crazy. Um, and the sound as well. Like I remember when we went to Apocalypse Now, like as Tom said, like that's the first time we'd been to IMAX in many, many years. And that as an opening scene with like helicopters flying in and like the sound was ridiculous. Um, but like the the opening scene at the opera, like the the score of the movie there, like seeing it, like hearing it on the IMAX speakers and seeing it on the big screen was pretty amazing. And like returning to cinemas and that being the first thing we saw was pretty cool, I think. Yeah. And definitely with the sound, like I know there's a lot to talk about the sound of this film itself, but um, I think not to give away the film that we saw the, like the other night, which we'll do probably. Um, but I just was sitting there in a normal cinema going like, wow, I wish that we had these like bigger speakers to watch this one with, you know, it's definitely an experience. Yeah. Um, I think one thing that I had, like we haven't really done context, but you know, um, I think one thing I'd heard going into tenant is that the audio is very intense and the dialogue is hard to hear. Shaggy, how did you did you experience that? Was it hard to hear? Well, I think there were some parts that were well for me more so, and I think maybe this is not seeing it in IMAX, but it seemed in some of the action scenes. The takeaway I had was it was like the score and like what was going on was so loud it almost merged together into just like white noise of loudness. Yeah, um, which maybe wasn't so great, but in terms of dialogue. I didn't have any issues with it because, to be honest, I think people need to take a step back. Like, like I think a lot of, like, in real life, you don't hear every single thing that someone says perfectly. And I know some would say, oh, well, you're, this is a movie, not real life. But I, for me, I felt the whole film came across well enough that even if, you know, you missed out on one or two bits of dialogue, I thought it was fine. But, Maybe that's just me being a Nolan fanboy. And I was going to ask that me. about whether it's a deliberate mixing thing, like particularly when they're doing. I know we'll probably talk about it later, like the the fancy show off sailing, like when they're talking through <laughs> their headsets. Then, like you can only catch little bits and pieces, or I myself can only catch little bits and pieces of the audio over like the roar of the water. But you know enough to hear the context. Um, so I think it's yeah. like it's just kind of realistic because you wouldn't hear a crisp conversation in that context. Yeah, definitely. I, I kind of like that. 
Yeah, it's interesting though, but it also has to, if, if we're going with that logic as well, it, part of the problem is, I guess, the fact that all of his scenes have so much like going on, like you don't really get any pure dialogue, many pure dialogue scenes. There's always like walking or something else happening, like when two characters are, to- are talking, um, that there is a bit of, I guess, noise that can, can enter the into the conversation. Mm. That's... A funny thing you mentioned because this film is full of walking and talking. Did like did that stand out so clearly to you guys? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Um, I just think there's there's a lot of talking anyway. Like in this, there's a lot of because it's like such a high concept or maybe low concept, whatever the correct term is. It is high um, concept, but then you could insult it with either way because, <laughs> as I understand, high concept and low concept. High concept is where you can. Pitch it in 10 seconds in the elevator. But then you can also call it low concept because it's like you can pitch it in 10 seconds in the elevator. I'm pretty sure they backflip on the terminology. Who's got a 10 second pitch for this then? You kind of did yours in the intro, I think, Tom, maybe, but it was like over 40 seconds. Yeah. What have you got, Rob? How would you pitch this in 10 seconds, Rob? Oh. Well, I think all that needs to be pitched is that you're getting a. Practical plane to Time. Um, smash into a build. <laughs> sorry, bro. <laughs> oh, the elevator just went ding. <laughs> Go ahead, sorry. No, that's not, I just think, for me, anyone that has gripes, I just think like, how can you go to the cinemas and watch them crash a real plane and then they've gone and splurged out on little car like cars that are being crushed by like the wheels of the plane as well mm. just because it's cool. Like <laughs> they didn't need to be there. I just appreciate that and I feel like that in, in itself is at least worth 50% or more on whichever rating service you choose <laughs> to rate this but, film. But you, so you work in... but. From what I understand, with your rating system, yeah. is that you worked in a deducting way. So all that is doing is really keeping that. That's the baseline. That's the floor. That's the baseline. It's five. So yeah, you have followed the brief. Hard. You've actually submitted an assignment on time. You've made sure it is fifteen or three thousand words or whatever. But it's about the content at this stage. We need to get into content eventually. Sure. Sure. Well. Yes. Don't worry. Not, not yet. It. I want to finish talking about walking and talking. <laughs> it's a bit of a broad question. So yeah, this let's film, focus on walking. Walking and talking, I, I think it needs to be acknowledged. This film has so much of it. And like, it's just the start is full of talking and conversation. Um, I understand they have a lot to communicate. Um, but I would, I, I guess I'll go on, make the first criticism of the film, which is that I don't think they should have been walking and talking every time. Because... Like, the plot basically goes epic action scene to start off, and then you get introduced to this boat. He gets a little bit of a briefing. It's a bit ambiguous. Then he goes to a scientist, and then he goes to Rob Pat. Then he goes somewhere else. Then he goes back to Rob Pat. And then they're doing, like, back and forth, walking and talking. And he's explaining rules and stuff. And literally, it it makes me think, were some of those scenes reshoots? Because to explain the concept a bit more because it seemed like they did walk in talks, which is, you know, I'm sure the listeners understand, but it's literally just where the camera's moving backwards and they're on a street walking next to each other, talking about what they need to do. Um, And it like they jumped around different locations. They're in London sometimes, um, which also brings me to something funny I noticed. They were on trams and public transport Openly Talking discussing about, yeah, exactly. stealing uranium and blowing shit up. It was getting wild. 
Um, yeah, just a lot of walking talks. Could you have put those discussions either all together or put them in a different location that was a bit more something was going on? I think no. I think that's sort of the fun aesthetic of it is that they're in all these places and may like if it if it affected if you're saying that the walking aspect made the audio a bit more difficult to understand or con- concentrate on because it is generally um oh, I'm forgetting the word um what uh what's what is what's dialogue exposition, exposition that's an yeah. exposition yes it's generally exposition so you're actually meant to hear it um and if like I think as long as the exposition was actually clear to understand, I thought it was kind of cool to be honest. I liked that. And I mean, imagine if you were on public transport and you hear two blokes talking about stealing uranium. Like what are you going to do with that information? You'd watch them. I think that's the biggest thing. If they're supposed to be top secret spies, they're not doing a very and good then, job uh, at not yeah, being but, noticeable. Yeah, uh, but if I just, if you just heard that though, would you? what are you going to do? Tell the police you heard two people talking about stealing uranium? You'd look at them. You would listen to the rest of their conversation. You'd nudge your friend, get him to listen as well. You'd start enjoying these this. two dashingly handsome men in these <laughs> like thousand dollar suits talking about uranium. I think you'd kind of believe it. <laughs> yeah, but again, though, who would you tell this information to? I don't think it's going to change the world. I'd call Crime Stoppers personally. <laughs> Peter Hitchner, he'd be he'd be on it. Sure, <laughs> Peter Hitchner. He'd have a laugh about it, Peter Hitchener. Yeah, he's a, he's a very jolly guy, he is. Um, but yeah, so a lot of exposition. Um, I have to, like, to be clear, I'm not criticizing exposition because, look, I'm a bit of a sucker for a Nolan film. You get in there and he he's throwing these concepts at you. I'm, like, tuning in. And especially because people say stuff about his films like, oh, they're hard to understand. So I think I go into them with an even more, like, i got to pay attention. I want to be the one who understands it at the end of the film. Um so I, I don't hate all the exposition. It just was sort of did take me back that, uh, especially for such a visual storyteller, um, because the rest of the film is a lot of visual storytelling, but the first like 30 minutes or 20 minutes is packed full of conversation. But is that the best way to, to set the rules? Because like with a movie like this where the, the concept is, you know, can be confusing and is quite in-depth, that that's what I sort of thought. Like the initial part of the movie, he jumped around a lot because it was really set in the scene. Um, and I don't really know how you can set up a complex concept and all these characters in different places and all that sort of stuff, you know, without without kind of jumping around like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've been thinking about this a lot in that what he kind of does and, you know, opens himself open up to criticism, but also, you know, he kind of backs himself into a corner in the sense that all these films, uh, uh, people are expecting something that's not only like has a crazy, interesting con- concept, but is full of action and different sets and all this sort of stuff. So not only is there a complexity to the concept, and also he's the sort of guy who bases things in science in such a way that there needs to be at least a semi-rational explanation for what's going on. Um, like you, he, you'd never watch a Nolan film where you can go back in time or whatever and he wouldn't explain, you know, the element of entropy or like some sort of scientific thing where people go, yeah. hey, that sounds plausible enough, you know. So he, he, he has to explain so many different things in a Nolan film. There's going to be the plot explanation, the, the physics of the world because it's always based in physics and like just reading about it. He, he, you know, he consults physicists to go, hey, does this sound all right sort of thing. Um, and then you've also and got... Did it sound all right? Where- <laughs> Did they say yes or no? 
Did they say, sorry, bud? I imagine. <laughs> yeah. Well, they just said entropy. That sounds good enough and that'll, that'll work. Yeah, go um, but the, the, I think that um, it, the, con, the, the, um, the, high, the complexity of his concepts sometimes lead to things where I go, maybe that didn't need to be in the film. Like for this one, for example, the stuff with like the fire and the hypothermia, right? So the heat travels through your body in a, in a different way. I was kind of like, this is something that you explained 10 minutes before. It's only relevant for 10 minutes after. And then the mm-hmm. rest of the film, it doesn't matter. Um, yeah. So it's just sometimes I think that he maybe overdoes it. But was that with, just like a convenient sort of stuff? Like the, the hypothermia. I mean, we're jumping ahead to another scene, but is that like just to kind of show off that, oh, this is part of the world, like something we just explained? Yeah. Because they wrapped them up yeah, in like the, the breathing thing. Like, did they have to wear masks because the air doesn't work backwards? Yeah, but it's he kind of just picks and chooses which physics really apply to the situation, which is fine. But I just think that w- with that, I was kind of just like, well, you didn't really need to to do that. And it just added an extra complexity that, you know, doesn't really serve much story in that sense. Um, yeah, so that's, that's just the thought I had with that particular thing. I was like, I could take or leave that. It didn't really do much to the story. Well, the thing that annoys me with that scene, maybe this is moving on before we've fully spoken about this, but I it, the, I think the biggest flaw was that it happened twice where it's like, oh no, the protagonist is going to die. And then suddenly it's like, bang, he wakes up and the guy's <laughs> like, oh, you're all good. We got you out of there. <laughs> Just like, you know, that, that probably annoyed me the most out of it. That's can, probably my criticism. Can you explain the fact that he takes a, pill that should kill him and he doesn't die is that is there anything deeper there in in terms of that either like he's suggesting that he actually died and or he's in a coma and this is his last like fever dream before he dies or something. <laughs> well actually well that's the, the classic that's the bailout <laughs> but um <laughs> like actually who are the who's the guy that captures him anyway the the russian sort of bloke or ukrainian or something Eastern Bloc I think you're, you're assuming they work for a um, evil Russian man at the end, right? Because okay. he's the, the the Russian guy stages the opera thing mm-hmm. in the first place. Yes. See, this goes over my head. I don't understand that part, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that's what I got to say. Like, I, I, in terms of comprehending and understanding the film, like, I definitely left it and went. I understood enough of that to enjoy it. And then I went home and read about the film and there was just so much that I had gone over my head, whether I'd missed it in dialogue or just like visual cues that I've, you know, because the other thing about watching something on IMAX is that there's so much information that you kind of are looking everywhere at the same time. Like it's almost a bit harder to focus on the central point of the scene. So there was definitely lots of plot elements that I didn't really pick up on. But I'm also not necessarily sure that matters. And that kind of goes to what you say, Rob, where it's like there is enough there to to get you through the action and the adventure and all of that and not, you know, not get that that element of it. But is it a criticism of a movie if you have to go and look up stuff and discuss stuff afterwards? We This has is a point that may or may not be addressed on the next episode of the pod, which is uh, does a, a movie have a responsibility to be able to explain itself um, should you have to research more afterwards? And ben, what do you think about that? You're the new player here. Yeah. Personally, I I like it when you're not completely spoon-fed the plot and there's a little bit of room for interpretation and you leave the cinema 
you know, talking to each other, being like, oh, how about this? How about this? All that sort of stuff. Like it's interesting and it opens up the opens up the opportunity for fan theories and looking up explanations and makes me, you know, keen to see it again and see what I missed, all that sort of stuff. Um, I think with the the future pod, I don't know where this fits in the ego hour cinematic timeline. But if you're talking about that was, you know, unclear. Like I got part of it, but not all of it. And I walked away from that being like, all right, am I stupid? Or was this like just hard to understand? Whereas with this, it's like, I understood enough of it, but then you read more and it's like, oh, cool. I didn't see that the first time. Um, and other people might have different things they picked up on and that leads to conversation. Mm. So I, I like that I personally. Think the thing, yeah, I think if you're making this sort of film then, because obviously Nolan tries to do that. He did it with Inception, he did it with Interstellar, he did it with, I'm sure, like all the ones that aren't Batman and Dunkirk. <laughs> um, and then the question becomes like, are your rules good enough in the world that looking into it won't explore, expose like plot yeah, holes, but rather ex- expose like more of a universe? And I, I do think that compared to something like Inception, I don't think that the, the, the rules or the kind of theme is as strong as Inception where asking these questions is as rewarding. Like Tenet, there's definitely an element to it where you have to just kind of um, surrender a little bit of maybe not necessarily logic, but the rules. Whereas in, as Inception, I think that you can keep going. And that that kind of discussion about was it real, was it a dream, went for ages and ages and was like a conversation always on people's tongues because people weren't finding like kind of plot holes or anything like that. You know what I mean? It, it stood up throughout all those conceptual discussions. Well, I think I can just sort of say I do agree with you. Like I guess ten- Inception is an ongoing question of reality, whereas Tenet is more so... Uh, a, a cool and I think unique take on time travel, but I'm not sure it's something that makes you endlessly sort of consider the possibilities in your head and maybe because it isn't as accessible as well. Like it's not as much of an inherent sort of human condition like question, whereas Inception is because it's all about like, and it's a shared experience dreaming that everyone has. So I do agree with you, but I think. I'm not sure there's anything that could be done with Tenet to make it more like that, although maybe you disagree. Um, I would just say I think that a part of the success of Inception maybe is it has a really strong emotional core with Leo. Like the whole Leo and Marion um, is like, you know, it's a very key theme of the film, whereas like in this film... I think the emotion, like there's, um, I can't remember the, the woman's name, her and her Kate, son. Uh, no, not Kat is her character name. Kat. Kat. Kat and her son is the emotional core of this film, but it's not as prominent or given like really as much fleshing out as like Leo in Inception, for example. Mm. So I just think it does, it does lead to different sort of kind of films in the end a little bit, you know? What do you guys think about that? Yeah, that's interesting. I'd say out of well i suppose it come it essentially becomes a a nolan discussion as it already is but like uh i think sort of the nolan problem is that he makes these cool concepts and they're visually awesome and stunning and that's why they're fantastic blockbuster cinema and good cinema as well i'm not like trying to undermine that i'm just saying the reason it's so good to watch at movies and stuff like that 
because the action, the spectacle is full scale and fully delivers. Um, but sometimes the stories are a bit tacked onto the concept. It's concept first, story second. But then, yeah, I feel like it, <laughs> I'm getting a big frown from Shaggy. Um, but I feel like in- Inception is the one where the plot is most tied to the the actual story, you know, like, and the existentialism is fantastic and universal and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I think this one, at, like, feels the most like he had a really cool concept. He had to put a story in there, and then, yeah, I would say it's a valid criticism potentially of Tenet, but I think the story is cool enough that it sort of outweighs it. But I can see, I think it's a valid criticism nonetheless. Whereas I feel like his other movies don't have that problem necessarily because I would say Interstellar has equally as strong an emotional core. Well, that's a core concept I of pers- Interstellar, right? Like that's the, the connection yeah. that kind of strings everything together. Definitely, definitely. I agree. And, and I mean, we could get into a whole other discussion on Dunkirk, but I, I do feel like that has an emotional core. I think... Have you guys seen Memento? Because I think that's an important comparison with this. Yeah, I watched that in lockdown this year. And did you feel that that was a better cinema or film experience to when compared to Tenet? Because they sort of do similar, uh, like, time concepts. Yeah, I think that definitely that's less challenging as a viewer in terms of understanding the how like the the time her time relatively flows in the movie. Um, Nick and Tom, you haven't seen it, have you? No. no. So basically, to, <laughs> to, not give to, to not give too many spoilers about the plot, but like with the, the time idea in that, it's like you kind of see like snippets of scenes and then that bit ends and then you're taken back into the scene that precedes that. So you kind of watch it backwards, but like scene by scene. Um, yeah. Is that a fair description, Rob? Yeah. Very well put. Thank you. Ben. Um, <laughs> what, Neb, sorry. Um, but yeah, I think, I think, um, whereas for me, I think maybe that slightly, no, well, no, I think it probably did have a better emotional core, but it's more on the lesser end because again, it's a bit of a sort of the, the concept is where you get sort of your enjoyment from, for me personally anyway. But I, I again, though, I don't, I don't think that should necessarily take away from the quality of the film, but I guess I think a lot of people do go to the movies and feel like they need to have characters to latch onto emotionally to truly get enjoyment out of the film. And I think everyone has their own set of like what I need to enjoy this movie. And maybe mine is just more forgiving in this area when others aren't. And that's why I like it more. But um, I, I guess with yeah, the I don't know. the comparison to Interstellar, like both have the same, you know, subplot, which is like got to save the world or got to save humanity. Like in Interstellar, it's a little bit more clear because you see the destruction of the planet happening and how it's degraded. Whereas in this, like you don't really find out the motivations of why everything is happening until sort of the climax scenes. But the whole movie is under the thing of like, we got to save the world, something bad's going to happen. Um, so. Yeah, I guess the the main character, whose name is protagonist for <laughs> for whatever reason, um, yeah, I guess you don't have the same emotional connection to him. But very early on, you're told like you know he's the hope to save the world. So I think that's how you kind of connect to him as a character. Yeah, um, 
just on that, like, I I think that's sort of a, one of the problems of the film in that the main character is called the protagonist. Like, I think I'm not completely being uh, sarcastic or joking because I just think it's incredibly, like, it's kind of corny. Like, it's just douchey and meta and not that cool. Um, I think maybe that is kind of the story thing where even you describing him, he sounds pretty generic, you know? He's supposed to be you putting yourself in his shoes. So it sounds a little bit like a kid's novel where they're just like, this man has the burden of the world on his shoulders. And um, I just think, like, you should have given him a name and some interest. Like, what's he do? He falls in love with a tall blonde woman. You know what I mean? He just, like, he doesn't have much character going on. And... You know, I thought it was valuable you brought up Dunkirk because I admittedly wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking about the more high-concept ones. But um, even Dunkirk, which is a really good movie, really like Dunkirk, don't get me wrong, um, it's more emotional broadly rather than independently. And I think that works in a war movie because war movies are sort of being made to represent an era and represent the everyman sort of thing. But in this, where the guy really is so special... It doesn't click the same. Um, yeah, and so I think the generic protagonist, the we support one character, is supposed to be inclusive for audiences, but it's actually a little bit undermining the plot sometimes. Because um, he doesn't... I, I really liked him as well, to be honest. I just think give him a name and give him a different motivation. Like, I just wasn't completely sold on him loving some woman he just met. Uh Give him a daughter or something like that. I want to throw some shade at Kat as a character in that I think she's good and the performance is good. But I also, uh, there's this big part of it that's like, okay, this this woman's married to this crime lord Russian who sells arms. And like, how much sympathy are we supposed to have as someone (laughs) who married and made their whole life with this purely evil Russian man? You know what I mean? Because um, it's like, okay, well, maybe she didn't know that he was selling arms and stuff like that. And it's like, okay, how willfully ignorant are you to the billions of dollars that you're sitting on right now? Mm. It's just a different, I don't know, you I just send find that kind of funny. send your kid to, a, like, the most expensive <laughs> private school in London. Like, you're cashing the checks just as much as he is. Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, plus she didn't, her main, I don't know, I just feel like it's a bit out of touch to that character because she, her only... Uh, driving force is her kid and she doesn't even interact with her kid on screen. Yeah, true. The kid doesn't have any lines, does he? Like, as opposed to Inception, where Leo's in love with his kids and yet you actually feel something for him because, like, he he talks about his kids a lot more. She just talks about wanting to stay with her kids, you know? Can I do a quick sidebar that's just pure... Sorry, Rob. Uh, just pure indulgence quickly with 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 Leo and Inception. Have you guys watched um, Shutter Island? Yes. I feel yes. like the Leo story in Shutter Island and the Leo story Inception are like very, very similar. And like mm-hmm. just even the way those love stories are told are very, very similar. But this, Inception doesn't like, So I was having a discussion about this yesterday, which sort of brought an interesting film thing to the forefront for me. So I think Shutter Island, um, you know, Shutter Island sort of spoilers inbound, but... Um, there's a big twist at the end, which is that it's all in his head, right? Um, I think that's sort of an old school style of filmmaking where you like set the table for all the, the plot twists and then you reveal the plot twists. Whereas in Inception, 
you set the pieces so that you know it can be a plot twist, but you don't actually reveal the plot twist, being the idea that it actually it's in his head and he's reconstructed the home where he sees his kids again. So I think modern filmmaking has changed a little bit so that you don't, like you build in these little uh, things, but you build them in as theories rather than actual plot points because when you make them actual plot points, it kind of undermines the start, which actually does relate to Tenon a little bit because I think sort of one of Tenet's flaws, and it's a bit uh, overarching and sort of hard to explain, but I think I wonder if on second watch the start is going to feel a bit undermined because there is such a big plot twist reframing at the end. Like, imagine watching the start again where they've got these backwards-firing guns and you're like, what's going on here initially? But then when you watch it on the second time, you're going to be like, well, this doesn't make sense anymore. And, like, it's just not as exciting as it sort of was the first time. And then all the twists are going to be played out. I was going to say, or do you watch it and look for it differently with that understanding? Like, when I was reading more about it, I didn't notice it the first time, but when he almost gets hit by the reverse bullet, they say that you see, you know, a a black-covered character with the backpack and you see the little the piece of fabric or whatever that, you know, Rob Patterson has on his bag. Like, I didn't notice that the first time. Uh, where he almost gets hit? You mean, like, where Rob Pat steps in? in the, no, in the opera scene. Like, when he nearly gets hit by the reverse bullet, you see him get saved by somebody with that backpack. And then it's like, oh, okay, so the the whole thing was happening in parallel. But I wouldn't have known that the first time, and I didn't really catch that. But something like that, you would watch again and be like, okay, so where does what was he doing in this time when he was still moving forwards? Shag? I'm just conscious there's a loud beeping from a truck reversing outside my house, <laughs> but I hope that goes away. Or, I mean, sorry, that's the tenant device that I'm just setting up to go back in time and... Um, yeah. Um, Turnstile. Anyway, I I think um, I I yeah I've watched a lot of theories on this film on YouTube, and yeah, I think there is all these things that are built in that you won't notice the first time, but it's not that easy. Like, because I think maybe they'd be better if I think sometimes it is better if you do reveal some of the twists. Um, and I think people would have more of an appreciation for that than sort of finding out on a second watch or through a YouTube explained video, because like, I think a huge, huge, huge twist in the film, and this is a potential spoiler, but the whole stage at this, (laughs) (laughs) well, I don't know if you guys are aware, I hope you are, but that the son is Robert Patterson or that is what is. I read that's a theory, ah. but then how that would work, I think, is, Give us some is complex there. because he has Be- to age a lot. Yeah. And I think, but I think it does, put, well, I guess, yeah, it is com- It is complicated, but I, the video I watched seemed to make sense. I mean, you could say just generically he's British with blonde hair and so is, the, <laughs> so is Robert Patterson. I'm sold. But I think... That- <laughs> The idea is like he grows up and he was saved by the protagonist who then teaches him in his youth all about like Tenet and everything and what he needs to do to save the world. And then he lives back the 20... But I guess, yeah, it sort of maybe doesn't add up with his age in the movie. Maybe it does, but... Yeah, I thought if they had found a way to work that in, I thought it could maybe be one of those 
more emotionally impactful mm. moments if they'd put that in rather than just left it as a um, sort of afterthought theory. Yeah. And that I, I feel like if that happened in the movie, I would have thought, yeah, that's cool. Like I yeah, would have yeah. really liked it. But So yeah. let's unpack the time travel a little bit because the way I understand it, time travels at the same speed regardless. So if like forwards or backwards, and you as an individual are still aging normally because you're still alive for the same amount of time. So if that were to well, be that- true, Robert Patterson, well, sorry, hear me. If that was true, which I think it might be, and you can contradict me in a second, wouldn't Robert Patterson have to like go into the future like four years and then back four years to be the perfect age for the film to start unraveling the way it did? <laughs> Is his age that important? Like, well, I'm just saying, like, if he's 10 as a kid or something, then he'd be 14, then he'd... Uh, sorry, maybe five years into the future, so then he'd go till he's 15, then he'd rewind time and live five years in backwards so that he becomes 20, and then the film unravels or something like that. Well, the question is, though, do you actually age in reverse? Because something that I've also found confusing was about how the whole mechanics of the bullet here healing in cat and why that worked and did that work in reverse like i like because it was sort of the bullet when when they synced her back up again was it like the bullet was like like undamaging her or was it just that she could heal in in backwards time but not in normal time or that whole thing really confused me um that i think yeah. kind of poorly explained because they <laughs> the scientist at the start just sort of says like oh you don't want to get hit by a backwards board that's really bad and then she gets hit by a backwards <laughs> board so cool Compared to a normal this board. is bad yeah <laughs> so my understanding was just by putting her through the turnstile it goes from a backwards to a forwards bullet and that's i guess not as bad because she, she's can't you <laughs> she still has the wound like so she still gets hit but they had to they had to go to Oslo to do that, but couldn't you just walk out the front door and walk around the other side and go back through the turnstile again, or does it not work that way? <laughs> yeah, like because they have the they have the literal barrier, and you're mm. saying if you just hacked it down and you went on the other side, you could just keep. Well, you don't have to hack back. it round. There's there's an entrance on the other <laughs> side of the building. I'm assuming, right? Yeah, but they blocked it. I'm like for dramatic impact, they at least blocked it. Mm. <laughs> it's because they don't want to see themselves or touch themselves, or it kills you. They definitely set you up at the start to think that reverse bullets are going to be more important in the film. And I think one thing as well is that the kind of time travel stuff doesn't play that big a role until a decent length into the film, you know? And that stuff is like the good stuff, but there's a whole lot of action, I guess. Well, maybe not a whole lot, but there's a decent amount of action that doesn't really involve that much time travel until later. But they're also just back on on the bullet thing, though. The, doesn't the protagonist get injured, and then it's sort of like his injury is getting worse in reverse with the bullet yes. to the biceps Does, when he's on the yeah, boat. Yeah, but it's yeah, and it and that's that confuses me again as well. Because was that a normal bullet that hit him? But then because he's traveling in reverse time, the wound gets worse. I don't really understand this whole time travel thing the more I think about it. (laughs) I thought it really just meant like you could be like, I guess the way I'd sort of simplify it for myself is that you can sort of be in the same place twice at once because you're getting a second run at the same amount of time, but it just happens to be in reverse, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But in terms of actually like events happening backwards is a bit confusing. 
But events only happen forwards. You just move backwards because your entropy is flipped. Yes. So if you, <laughs> if you shoot a gun backwards, what happens? Well, you're catching the bullet, man. It's going, it. it's going forward, but then when people watch it, it's going backwards in normal time. Because it's a perspective yeah. thing ultimately. Right? Yeah, relative yes. to the other frame. I do have to say, I do like this concept a lot. I, like the way that they did it, I thought it was an original way to do time travel. Yeah, you know? so Cause that's a segment I wanted to address. Sorry, unless you want to do it. Can we no, no, talk no, about I, the, you the pantheon of time travel? Like, how do yeah. you rate the, the best time travel concepts? I have two just to... To throw at you right now. Rolling. First one um, is Harry Potter three. How do we? How does this stack up to Classic Harry Potter three's time, time travel? Well, what was well, the other one? Let's hear all of them. Well, I've got two important ones in my life, at least. Number yeah. one, Harry Potter time travel. Number two, the Dragon Ball Z style of time travel. I was waiting for that. So, <laughs> yeah. So, Rob, are you familiar with this? I am not. Please so, in. in Dragon Ball Z, the Dragon Ball Z spoilers are inbound. Um, in uh, a certain arc a character travels uh, arrives in the spaceship and then it turns out it's one of the kids who's a kid at the present time from the future and he goes oh in the i'm from the future in the future goku the main character gets heart disease and dies i have medication to give to goku so that he won't die from heart disease so that he can stop this incoming threat right but then this other set of events happens where further in the future an alien found his time travel machine and traveled back in time so the present tense ends up being this different fork um where he has to fight a different stronger villain but basically what happens every time they travel back in the past it splits the timelines so trunks being from the future coming to the past changes their present reality because he's obviously come back in time but in trunks's original he trunks never came back in time obviously yeah so so you're basically saying it creates like new alternate timelines of reality each time and it's like different layers and you sort of say forget about like that yeah that same thing happens is a common thing in star trek mm. um yeah if anyone's familiar with star trek 2009 and they use it as a device to like reset canon so they can do whatever they want in the new timeline yeah um, and controversially. basically, I think that's probably the simplest and cleanest way to do time travel, to be honest. Like, to just change timelines? Yeah, split timelines, alternate realities. One, one could argue that it's not physically um, possible because there's the whole Robert Patterson philosophy on it that it's like, isn't it like, what does he say? It's like, what has happened has Will happened. Always happen. Yeah. So there's different ways of looking at it, and I feel like that doesn't occur in this universe of Tenet. Well, it's more that everything it, already has happened. What it does well is it gets rid of like the grandfather paradox stuff, where like because you're you're interacting with a different version of yourself, it doesn't instantly delete you or destroy you or something like that, because your current self doesn't have to go back in time as well. It's a separate entity, you know. But then you don't have to. They sort of explain that you can't touch your previous self. In Tenet. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, why? I was still praising Dragon Ball Z. Because <laughs> he wrestles himself, but he doesn't physically. But he touch his skin. He's got the suit on. Yeah. But what's supposed to happen if that happens? They say you dissolve or something. I think it just breaks the universe. I feel like you should be able to touch yourself. Why wouldn't you be able to touch yourself? 
Because you still, well, you still do. It does delete you though. If you if he killed him there, it would delete him because the past version of him wouldn't go forward. Yeah, I get that. I think if you kill yeah. your present self, you should die. But then, yeah, and I guess so you that, shouldn't exist. But then everyone would have seen you. So like, does everyone else's memories die because you just got deleted? You know what I mean? Do they remember you? Yeah, I I think I think it does. It, it is very confusing and maybe then it creates an alternate reality where you didn't exist perhaps but okay yeah it's so and and it's i wonder if people listening are gonna be like oh you know like just move on because (laughs) it's so hard to unpack like it is so and i guess or at the end of the day we're just three guys giving our random thoughts on it when there's probably a million different interpretations of it but I, i i don't know i feel personally I would enjoy listening to different <laughs> takes on it from okay. random people. So I hope our listeners are as well. Uh, um, yeah. So do you want to talk more about Harry Potter and alternative methods of time travel? Or do you want to hear me make fun of Tenant? Because <laughs> <laughs> this time travel thing's very epic, right? And it looks visually stunning and it looks really cool. And so you're like, oh, backwards bullets. That's cool. What did they do there? Turns out you step into a rotund, uh, like a rotating thingamabobbo and then you turn around and then you can move back in time. And the secret behind this time travel machine is a number. It's not blueprints. They're not constructing blueprints for the first time travel machine. They are trying to find the algorithm which will explain time travel. I think that the concept is fantastic and brilliant and epic, but the fact that the time travel machine is just a machine that you step in and it goes around is a complete undersell of the sort of technology you'd want to see to to do time travel and the fact that it's all pinned on some algorithm which like you know just make it so that they're hunting down the first blueprint for the time travel machine which would also serve solve the third problem for me which is that if time travel's so powerful, why are there like three or four different terminals in the world where time travel can already be achieved? Have they already mass-produced time travel machines so that every man and his gangster has a time travel machine? I have responses to two of these takes. The first one, you're dissing the way it looks. And I would just disagree. Like, I actually like the whole turnstile thing. I'm a sucker for like a simple name for a, for a complex thing. I don't know why, but them being called turnstiles, I just really vibed with. And I just liked that it was some big bulky machinery thing versus a flashbang sort of lots of people in white jackets talking around it sort of thing, which is what you'd expect. So I kind of liked that more rough feel to it. Um, In terms of the algorithm, I think that makes more sense. Like if you're basing it in science, right, and you're trying to come up with an equation or something that that you know, accounts for the way to flip entropy or whatever. That kind of does hold up for me, I, I think. Are you inventing it or discovering it? If it's You're discovering equation? it, I would say. Because, yeah, they say, like, a woman discovered it and she, she was a scientist and she discovered it. I think, yeah, I think that kind of makes sense to me to an extent. And third? I, what was the third take? Why are there time travel machines everywhere if it's going to end the world? Who, who wants to take that one? <laughs> Um, no. oh, I'm guessing it's the too, silence from Neb. It's too political. <laughs> no one wants to touch it. <laughs> I feel like that is a good that is a good question, but isn't the idea of what destroys humanity 
like the actual weapon, isn't it? Rather than time travel itself. I thought it was time so, travel. I thought they were fighting it, for the code because if the code fell into the wrong hands, people would mess up with time travel. But I think they were trying to detonate what they had there, which would, on a, a global basis, flip all the entropy. Like the turnstiles as singular things aren't really that dangerous because what are you going to do? Feed the whole world through one or two of those things. But I think it was if they did the detonation, which they were trying to do in the final scene with the completed algorithm, then you kind of do the reaction, which flips everything. What? So wait, just quickly, what, what are they doing? Like what's going to end the world again? <laughs> just quickly. <laughs> what? <laughs> But Ben just said. I think my, my understanding is that like if they did the explosion at the end, the entropy of the whole world flips, which essentially means that time for everyone moves past. So the future can, oh. lives the other way, whereas everyone in the past um, is, I don't know, destroyed or is taken over by the future or doesn't exist. They sort of dance around that with the grandfather paradox. So they're trying to smash the two timelines to face each other and then meet in the middle. Well, that's why they talk about explosion. the idea with the tenant, mm-hmm. where it's like that the symbol is like time moving forward, time moving that way. And they say, that like, if they do the explosion, it moves everything in one direction rather than two, two directions going together. Would everyone from the future die instantly? Because we were also told you need an oxygen mask to breathe going backwards. Well, that's what they kind of... flip the air, then it's fine, right? That, yeah, I think so. They the kind of dance around that, like in the, the, the boat scene where... They're traveling back to the Freeport. They talk about the grandfather paradox. And then Robert Patterson's kind of like, well, they must not really care. Like, they're just going to see what happens anyway. There was a pretty funny quote that happened where someone goes, I think it was the scientist. She's like, don't even, don't try to understand it. It's too complex or something like that. And it's just like, no one wasn't it? Hold it out. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, and I, I feel bad for Nolan in the sense that including that you were just going to like invite a lot of people to like make fun of your film for that reason. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's fine. Yeah. So that, oh, I don't know. I, maybe I'm too simple minded, but that's too, that's so convoluted. I would, because <laughs> like what, what is the first explosion then again? So it's a diversion to steal part of the code, right? At the opera, yeah. So the last yes. piece. Just on that quickly, like how you said whether the algorithm on one of your points is was that a good or a bad thing. I also kind of like that it was something physical, but also like why say there's nine parts when he already has eight of them? You mean you could round to the nearest tenth and just figure out the rest well, of the Well, it's algorithm. just it's just kind of like they set it up as a thing like he needs to you know, let's say like Dragon Balls. Like because you raised Dragon Ball Z earlier, like you need to have the whole set of them. But when he talks to, protagonist talks to that character Priya at the end, she's like, oh, there's nine parts. How many does he have? He has all nine now. It's like, okay, cool. Like he, 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 He's got everything. He just needed the last one. Um, it's an arbitrary number of nine is what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. And just whether- It could have been two. Yeah. It could have been one. It could have been one. <laughs> it could have been one. <laughs> but then yeah, that's like, does one. it just tie into at the end, they say, let's all go and hide them throughout time. But like, and then some guy ends up with like five of them anyway, <laughs> so there are basically two. I think I th- I just find this whole. I mean, this is a bit of a backstep, but I think this whole podcast is maybe making me th- 
be a bit more critical of Tenet because it seems like there's all these different blanks in our conversation and gaps where everyone's just trying to wrap their head around a whole different element of the film and it seems to get it seems for me like it's almost gets more complicated the more you think about it which maybe isn't a good thing perhaps yeah i it just kind of i think out of all of the nolan films to me that i've seen this is the one that didn't have it as the foundation as kind of solidly thought out as maybe the rest of them he was more in this one kind of like this is the concept and we're going to roll with it and i think once you kind of accept that then it's a bit of a weight off your back you know mm. yeah i yeah. think i think it it's sort of like let's finally i'll finally get to the stuff i love about this and what i love about this is that it's such a visual movie and i suppose that sort of ju- it is sort of the basis of why I can criticize it and like it at the same time, which is that I think the dialogue and the exposition and stuff is quite confusing. But at its simplest, this film has fantastic action sequences. Like, even the concept itself is visually stunning and makes sense when you're watching it. Like, it makes enough sense that things are happening backwards and that they're about to happen backwards and forwards sort of thing. For example, the freeway thing where the car's flipping around. You don't know what that is, and yet that's so exciting. That's dramatic suspense to see a thing that's backwards and you don't understand what's going on is like fantastic dramatic suspense where you're like, what's the explanation for this? I can't wait to get a few minutes into the future of this film to understand what this is. Um, and it's just amazing. Like it's, it's just such good cinema viewing because you're, everything's going on, everything's full scale, everything's really exciting. Um, and so that is why I love Nolan because Nolan is the guy who's swinging for the fences and buying the most expensive sets and buying like and shooting it on IMAX 70 mil like you got to love everything about that right 100% and he's doing this with original ideas like you see huge cinema in marvel but it's it's marvel like this is a a fresh idea um which i think is really awesome like you just don't see other people doing brand new complicated concepts on this larger scale I do, I do a hundred percent. I agree and strongly endorse all the points that um have been said here. I think, yeah, at the end of the day, we would rather have cinema coming out like this. And it just like f- the thing is, it really a- annoys me that people will go and watch like Bill and Ted face the music and give that a higher rating than <laughs> this Nolan epic that has had so much thought and intelligence go into it like i always i like i remember just watching this and thinking imagine being a cinematographer and told you need a shot list like the plane scene Mm. like you've got to somehow come up with how you're going to visually tell the thing happening in the first place then the thing happening in reverse plus the characters being involved in both of those scenes plus then the practicalities of how you're actually going to film such a huge scale thing and i think for a lot of people like i don't want to sound i maybe i do sound like a pretentious film student going to the cinema they don't think about that they just see something and are so quick to sort of criticize and not whereas i think all of us including myself sometimes need to take a step back and go like 
this is a pretty monumental achievement that someone has. And I think you do, like, I remember thinking like that, watching student films, you're more likely to go, oh, how did they do that? Like, that's really cool. And you sort of, you like the film because they were able to sort of pull off something wacky or cool or scale-wise, whereas for some reason we seem to throw that out the window when we go to a movie center and watch more of a big-budget film, whereas I think maybe we shouldn't sometimes. Yeah, and just adding on that, it's just, it's really, you know, all the things about, like, original concepts, big budgets, and, you know, they're great action sequences that aren't in a movie that you just completely hate because how dumb it is, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's just like... That's a, yeah, good point. Yeah, it's not Transformers, you know what I mean? Where you have to turn off the other part of your brain. You can actually, even if the logic doesn't all come together, maybe, you still get to engage a little bit, at least with that, you know, versus what you're competing with, which is, you know, all the superhero movies and stuff like that. And I think, you know, we talk about this, there's a lot riding on this film and I'm pretty sure that it's a bit of a, because of COVID, it's been a, considered a flop because it, you know it's obviously outdone its budget but in terms of marketing and stuff like that it hasn't made it up and it's just like i really hope that this isn't the end of of nolan films you know like i don't think it's the end i think it could be sort of the tipping point um i think i find it hard to imagine he gets 200 billion dollars again after a movie that's not gonna like smash box office records mm. because they just be like well you know, we gave you 150 million in the last one, and you made a lot more money. So here's, we're not going to give you that 50 million. It's just not a smart investment by that logic. Um, I Having think said that, lots of people have seen this. Like every time I talk about it, people have seen it. You know what I mean? Yeah, but so I, I read a thing that was talking about um, how well it had done, and basically the summary was: this is done poor so far. It's done poorly for a Nolan film. It's done well for anyone who's not Nolan, because mm-hmm. if I run or Marvel, if I run you through some of the Nolan uh, gross ins, Dark Knight Rises one point one billion, Dark Knight one billion, Inception eight hundred twenty six point one million, Interstellar six hundred seventy seven point five million, Dunkirk two hundred twenty five point two million. So that's his top five. Um, next one's three, Batman's three seventy, and then everything else was about a hundred mil. I'm just worried there's a bit of a downward trend there. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, because I, I, unfortunately, like, Nolan is doing Tenet with himself there where, like, the, the <laughs> superhero movies he's made were even more financially successful than the ones that were original concepts, you know. So it's un, sort of, like, unfortunate on that thing. Um, but I don't know. I feel like watching this film and after hearing Nick's comments and Shag's, everyone's comments basically just in the last little bit, I feel like this is the cinema that we sort of... I feel like this is classic Hollywood sort of evolved. Like I think if you watched movies in the other eras, you thought this is where the movie industry would end up. Um, so it's sort of interesting that there's this fork in the road mm. in like 2008 and stuff when, oh, I guess 2001 maybe where Spider-Man comes out and the superhero thing steals Hollywood. But like, and even the fact that this is pretty much a James Bond movie, um, I think this is what old Hollywood was supposed to be or expected to be. And I, so for that reason, I also think this type of movie won't disappear. It's just rarer, basically. He'll be the only one making it, surely. Like there will be, it'll it'll be one or two people, one or two Mm -hmm. filmmakers. And it maybe already is, you know? 
it's scary to think that this is the last $200 million one that everything's done in camera, basically. Like, this could be the biggest live-action practical effects thing you've ever seen. Isn't that scary? Don't say that. <laughs> do we have any thoughts on that? Well, I was just going to say, what do you think are others ones recently? Like, the, the next big kind of budget one that comes to mind in the last couple of years is 1917 to me. And I just looked True, that up that's... and that said budget of, on Wikipedia this is, budget of 90 to 100 million. So, that's pretty big budget. And I'd say that was a really but good that's movie. that's half of this budget. It's, it's half, I think, yeah. I think this is this could be the most you ever spend on a movie that's not a franchise. I don't see, yeah, them justifying more than 200. I mean, I don't even know what the budget for the Marvel movies were, if you look that up. They're, they're 200s and stuff like that. Right. I guess... But that's guaranteed a billion back, pretty much. Yeah, exactly. Uh, unfortunately. So, this is where we plug the book that I was I mentioned on a future episode, sort of, um, which is The Big Picture by Ben... Is it Ben Fritz, Ben? Yep. And it's the fight for future of Hollywood and it's basically explaining the rise of Marvel and the downfall of everything that's not Marvel. So it's not completely focused on Marvel, but it's a a key player in the game, of course. Um, Yeah, so... I also think that, like, 200 is just insane. Like, it's probably extraneous. And, like, there are so many great movies that can be made for so much less. Like, if you had have told me there's a film... I don't know. Like, if someone told you, without you knowing the answer now, uh, that there was one movie that was a war movie with full-size trenches, um, trucks, guns, planes, all that stuff, and it's all shot in one take... And then there's another film where they fly a plane into an airport hangar thing. Which of those would you think had the bigger budget? Because, yeah, I think that, um, like, budget is sort of... Like, there's definitely instances where there are smaller budgets that achieve bigger looks than you realise, you know? So I think it is a bit arbitrary, the concept of budgets and box office and stuff like that, because I think they always will be movies made that are like unreal and pushing the limits and stuff it, like it's that it's to do with stars and stuff like that as well like mm. how much is each person getting paid i'm sure nolan takes a big fat paycheck from every film he makes you know that's true i wonder how they manage that sort of conflict of interest being that his wife is producer as well um they take pretty interesting dollars yeah i can't quite imagine but well, putting your producer hat on, do you think you could have made the same movie with less money? Like yeah, things that can. were extravagant like, for the sake of extravagance? Yeah, you cut... I don't know. Like, I don't know numbers really. Scene, maybe, you, for example? That that wasn't crazy complex. Oh, well, I'm guessing Which because I saw a the clip. The locations. Yeah, the locations the is lo- a huge one. They jumped from London to Mumbai twice. Mm, yeah. Um, and... Can I... Can I just ask a question on locations? I did find it confusing. I think maybe it was a bit of a flaw because the final scene, right, is meant to be in Thailand. Vietnam. Where was it? No, Viet- Vietnam. Vietnam, the, the sorry. What, really? Whereas, I had no idea. Yeah, whereas because... Apparently they filmed it in on the Amalfi Coast, which is in Italy. Yeah. Um, so there's a scene where the protagonist is talking to Kat and it's in Italy. And I'm pretty sure they also shot the Vietnam scenes off that coast as well, you know? Yeah, which is 
not good, I think, because, yeah, I, I found that confusing because that first part is meant to be in Italy when they're all on the boats and everything, but then when, like, the... I think the, the like the yachts boats. I mean, whereas then the final boat part where you know the whole climax happens, that's meant to be in Vietnam. But that's in the and past. It, whereas they, yeah, this is where the timeline gets so trippy vicious. because like that bit yeah. in Vietnam plus the opera bit plus the raid in northern Siberia that all happens at the same time. Yeah, but the opera bit happens at the same time. Yeah, so I guess if we're jumping into plot bits now, if that's okay. Um, well, we yeah, have well, to. <laughs> I, I just sort of want to say that I think it's a bit of a fault because it's so visually similar with the with the water and coastline bits that it makes it even harder to sort of comprehend that for your average cinema guy, I think. Um, I was just going to say with what I didn't get until looking it up later was like with that final scene in the the yacht in Vietnam where like you see him fly away on the helicopter and you see her leave with her son and then she comes back and then then he's also there I was kind of like how does this work and it wasn't until reading about it a bit more I don't know if you guys got this at the time but like that was future Sator or whatever his name is and future her but then she was pretending she was her from the past where was present Sator? He went to go, he flew off in the helicopter, but in what I read, it says he probably went to just go oversee that the, that either the Siberia stuff went well or the opera stuff went well. Probably the opera stuff. But how come he didn't have past. a mask on? Yeah, that's a good question. Because he went back, I guess, and then went forward again. Oh, he, he probably flipped himself. Yeah. Cat. He flipped and flipped. Yeah. So he probably lived like that day a bunch of times. Is that sort of the point? Or those two days? Well, because she said that he's probably going to go there to, to end his life because that's when he was last happy. So what he probably did, you're right, was flip twice. Like he went back to that and then flipped so he'd be in non-ventilator mode to enjoy his last moments on the boat. Um, speaking, of, speaking about this part, what did we think about the whole phone call talking to him while he was there? See, <laughs> it was sort of hard to understand, like orally. And conceptually, there's a lot going on. <laughs> there's just, I don't know. It's the whole point of thing of him, like, just turning the other way, having a conversation while his wife's in the background, just like hearing him, just doing nothing. You know what I mean? And he's just like, I'm fucking God. And she was getting the, the sunscreen set up so there. she could slide him off the edge. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> oh, is that, that what was she was doing? Funny. Yeah. She was yeah. getting it all slippery to push his corpse. <laughs> I just, I just hate. I'm a bit over people calling themselves gods in movies. Like, I think mm. that's a bit played out, you know. I think it's time we address the theme, which comes out, the theme of the movie comes out in that moment where he goes on a speech about, uh, I can't really remember the specifics, but it's sort of about why stop the, why try and fight the inevitable decline of humanity at all. And then RDW, which is what I wanted to call the protagonist this whole pod, but we haven't talked about him that much. Um, Adi Dub goes like, oh, but shouldn't we try? And then he's like, no. And then they stop him. And I think it's quite, to me, it felt quite clearly an environmental commentary about how we've got to stop climate change or we're going to ruin the world for our kids and stuff like that. But it wasn't a very, it wasn't enough of that to make it an effective emotional message. Uh, I think, you know, 
I love me a good climate change reference, and I, I think that's great. Um, I just think they wish they would have. Well, I do. <laughs> There's an episode where we talk about this extensively, um, but I, yeah, I just wish that that theme was literally dealt with in one sentence. You know. Yeah, and it's very late in the movie to understand what the future's motives are, which I mean, it kind of like when I was watching that. Like that wasn't really a deal breaker for me per se. Like you were just like, you were going along with it. But I think that probably a, you know, a a distracted phone call like that to give away the whole agenda of who you're essentially fighting against that late in the movie, whether that is a bit too little, too late sort of thing. I'm not sure what everyone else's thoughts are on that. Shag? I'm just still, to be honest, I'm just, I'm a bit out of it because I'm still trying to work out the whole future physics of like the the whole, like this is just confusing me the more I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe let's not go into it because I feel like we don't have much time, but maybe, yeah, just count me out of this discussion point because <laughs> my head is, I'm going to go and watch some more explained videos after There's this, the, um, to be honest. I was waiting for the moment. There was the pod promo clip and that, that was it just there. So, <laughs> I hope you all enjoyed that. Um, but uh, yeah. I think any last, let's try and get in some last thoughts before we wrap her up. Uh, any... I just want to talk about Enviro stuff just a little longer. Okay. I think, yeah. I think that that, because it also brings me to another criticism of the film, which is that I hate that the main guy is a, uh, a Russian mafia man. Um, especially, and the other, the second layer to that is why make him a Russian mafia man played by an English guy? Surely we have Russian actors by now who can speak English and can, uh, you know, believably play. I don't know a Russian. Yeah, but guy. if you're a Russian, do you want to play the evil Russian? You yeah, know? So or you'd be like, what, hey, give me a role that isn't evil in a film. So that's what I want to talk about. Um, I think that I think the plot would have been better if they make the future villain, and they could tr- they could tie this plot together a little bit better. But they make, they make the future a big business. I think you make it about corporatization and about not caring about the climate so you can more directly comment on that theme that they want to do. Um, you make them big business who wants to capitalize on some mining resource or something like that. And then that's why they want the code in the future and they know that they're going to destroy the planet quicker or something like that. Um, but the reason I think that this guy is a Russian guy is because I think we're in a strange level of PC culture. And I don't mean PC in like the bad way, but I just mean like, I think Americans feel like they're allowed to make fun of Russians. They're allowed to have this Cold War stuff going on. Um, because I think the the villain in movies has changed so much. The villain in movies has recently been, um, you know, an Asian person. It has also been a um, Middle Eastern type person. Um and so then I think they just revert into the old classic because they try to sell these movies to different markets now. They, mm. um, have, they can go back to the, the Cold War storyline. It's a classic American thing. Um, but I think it would have been so much better if it was a corporate entity that was uh, fighting this. And then you can promote that message more. But maybe they don't. But also you've got a $200, $200 million budget and, you know, Big business is this film. Yeah, make I think that I think that is life. the reason why they but, don't criticize big business. Yeah, but can't 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 big business be Russian and represented by a Russian man? It was, and though. also <laughs> true, but but also 
I do feel like it is a bit cliche. I would probably see that as more cliche, to be honest, if it was big business, because I feel like there is, without being too disrespectful to your idea, Thomas. <laughs> um, no, I just think, I just, I don't know, but maybe that's just me. Like, I do agree with you. Maybe it would have been nicer to get more of a villain representative of climate change if we're going down that path i do agree with you but i'm i'm not a hundred percent sold on that solution just because i think it, well it just makes me think about like wally and that's very like i um, like wally i think wally i like wally as well but I, that's like why wally. i just think it's maybe been done sort of the whole too overtly climate change the one makes me think of avatar now that you've mentioned it and avatars. Yeah. But yeah, I, I just, I, I think the main thing is it's not very, it wouldn't have been genuine for a big budget studio thing where he's like literally just blowing up planes for shits and gigs, like <laughs> to really take that, that stance, you know, mm-hmm. maybe that's it. What's yeah. it? It's tokenistic. I, I, I don't know, but it, it's just like today, nowadays everyone's, taking this faux climate activist stance, all these corporations, because it's selling, you know what I mean? Uh, uh, so on, I, I almost do agree with Rob that I'm kind of glad it, do, it didn't do that because it just wouldn't be genuine, you know what I mean? Like, Does that mean it's good or bad if him as the, the present-day villain is someone who's just doing whatever just to make money, like kind of like disregarding the, the bigger agenda because he was in the right place at the right time to make some money? Well, I was just going to say, isn't that in itself perhaps representative of humanity? Well, that's what yeah. I was wondering, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Perhaps. Damn, this movie's real deep. In real. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On that note, I think we that's the timer and it's time to wrap her up. Beep, beep, beep. Um, all right. Fellas, what, did we, what worked for you in this film? We'll start with Neb. Okay. Um, well, just... I guess talking because we didn't go through them at the time like some of the scenes that I really liked and there was a number of moments that just watching it I was like oh whoa that's really cool um, like the the opera scene at the start I thought was really awesome and it like, straight away gave me Batman vibes I guess just because I knew it was Nolan but it just took me right into that place um, especially with the music like it was just very epic to start with um, I thought that the when they like reverse bungee jump in India, that was really cool. Like that was a cool thing they could do. Um, the first like time where we see the concept in action is the like the fight scene, and I thought that was like the choreograph choreography of that was really incredible, um, and that like really kind of um, you know sold the concept, and you got to see it in action. Um, I think as we discussed, like the the car scene was really awesome, and then the the whole final, I guess, climax of the movie, particularly when they, you know, both teams synchronize their watches and blow up the same building. Like, yeah. that, that was probably the most mm. visually impressive thing of the movie for me. That just looked amazing. Um, yeah, that's, that's some cool. of the stuff I really liked. What about you, Shag? Oh, well, I think, to be honest, um, that does cover a lot of what I did like. I'm sort of not liking yeah the the confusing parts but yeah i think overall just yeah to reiterate the whole scale of the film is something that i enjoy i also think that i did like the emotional twist the robert patterson twist at the end that worked for me that was a big tick for me 
and I do like how the how it's a film that's sort of I I really have I feel like maybe it hasn't happened as much in recent movies where it's about friendship. It's not about love as such at the end. It's about like this is the start of a beautiful friendship. Like maybe that sounds a bit cringe to say, but when they say it in the movie, <laughs> I really like that. I thought that was a heartwarming sort of moment, and I thought doesn't he I say like this that. is the end of a beautiful friendship? Yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. The if same he movie. Says, <laughs> start or end, but uh, yeah, I think I think that's really nice, and I think a Nolan criticism is. Oh, you give your characters emotional weight by giving them like a wife and a kid. But I think for me, the emotional weight was um, that, yeah, that they've their friend, like their friendship, and that and the end of that um, that he doesn't need, and he's only sort of starting to realize when it's like ended already, sort of. But but starting as well. But yeah, anyway, I I like that. What about you, little silky? What works for me, similarly, the big action sequences. This is blockbuster cinema at its finest. Everything is in camera. I'm uh, Shag mentioned earlier, maybe he wasn't left thinking how they do stuff. I, in the inverse, was thinking how did they do stuff. Um, I think sometimes, just quickly, observational, like sometimes I noticed you could see sometimes things looked funny back because it was a backwards clip and you could tell that they were trying to do forward stuff backwards so that they could then flip it later on. But I think that the... So the action sequences, unreal, so good. I love that the sets doesn't cheap out. The choreography of the fighting is really awesome. Um, the the thing we haven't had time to talk about really is the the casting. I really like RDW, um, and I really love seeing Robert Pat. He's he's launching himself into the the next great actors category at the moment. I reckon he's building the rep. Um, yeah, so I really enjoyed those characters. And I like that we have a movie that we can talk about for so long, sort of passionately. If Nolan does one thing well, it's that. Yeah. Um, what would you change, Little Silk? What would I change? I would take the plot, uh, you know, cut the ties and then unravel it a heap. Um, I think the plot is so convoluted. Could have been simpler. The concept itself is so strong and visual that the plot needs to be a lot less complicated. I think I take out the love interests. I think Kat shouldn't be a love interest because like Shag was saying, um, it worked really well as a friendship movie. Maybe I push that a bit more because I don't think you need to fall in love with someone in an action movie. Um, yeah, complication. Maybe just make the emotional beats a little stronger. Change, give, give the protagonist a name. <laughs> That's a big one for me. Um... Yeah, those are my main things. What would you change, Shag? Well, I'm just going to keep this short and sweet because I think other people are making good points. I'm just going to say I would change the soundtrack. Mate, don't go and name every soundtrack in all capital letters. Please, man. <laughs> it's just, no. I, I just don't enjoy that. And even though I thought, of, I don't want to talk trash about my man Ludwig because I think he's supremely talented. Um, I was a little bit disappointed in that a lot of the tracks, I think in itself, I mean, I don't know if this is really a movie criticism, but I think a lot of it's specifically scored to the action and it's harder than other Nolan films for me to go into the soundtrack and enjoy listening to it by itself. Um, oh, that's a good take. So, yeah. Interesting. 
I, I would, yeah, maybe, I felt like maybe I would have liked a little bit more emotional core to the soundtrack, but. I was going to ask about the soundtrack, sorry to jump in, because for me, at least, like, Inception and Cellar both have really notable songs, which are standalone songs from the movies, which I would listen to on their own. Um, and I did lead this thinking, like, is this the sort of soundtrack you would listen to by itself, like, without an action scene going on in the background? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, it's definitely a different tone from his other soundtracks. Like, it's less orchestral and was more electronic and glitchy, which obviously is shown a bit by the change in um, composer, you know, versus the other ones. <laughs> Um, and uh, what do we think about having a Travis Scott song come on straight away after the film? Like that was a bit, uh, uh, no diss to Travis Scott or the song itself, but it's a bit, a bit too commercial for me. I don't know. Like it's a bit too like, Hey, this is the biggest person in music right now doing my movie. Like I didn't love that. Wait, I didn't know he did music. I thought he was just like, was marketing for McDonald's. I didn't know that he did. Bit of music on the side as well. So, yeah. I thought he was the Fortnite guy. What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah and he makes He's jean shorts guy. in McDonald's. <laughs> All right, Neb, what would you change about the film? Um, I think that the would I don't know if it's possible, but try and like streamline and clarify the explaining of the rule. Like the first half of the movie was kind of like explaining everything and setting it up. Um, whether you could make that a little bit more streamlined if possible. I'm not really sure if it is possible, um, but I guess, you know, going away from it, I sort of thought that the start, you don't really get to see a lot of the entropy, uh, you know, flip in action. You just kind of set the scene. Um, And I thought that in terms of him, protagonists kind of learning what's going on, there's a lot of just kind of like jumping, like he talks to someone then finds out of information. Then he talks to the next person then finds out like he just kind of was like piecing it together bit by bit. Um, for something as complex as this, I don't know how you do it otherwise, um, but that was just a bit that had me sort of thinking. All right. Well, let's start with you. What do you rate it? Uh, what is the, the rating system? We're doing out of a five star. Out of five stars. Okay. Rating and justification. Uh, whatever just you feel. Rate it. <laughs> okay. Just rate it, bro. Well, I think that, you know, despite the fact that we, you know, discussed, I guess, spent a lot of time discussing bits of confusion or bits of, uh, you know, that we would change, I still think this was a, a really great movie. Um, as a cinematic experience, I think it was was awesome. And as the, you know, the thing throughout, you know, lockdown this year where I was like, this is really cool Christopher Nolan movie coming out hopefully we get to see it sometime this year. Like, I think that it really did live up as a cinematic experience. Um, I love the fact that there were just, you know, huge action scenes and just really went for it. Um, And, you know, a lot of really cool scenes. Um, And, you know, even though we do have some discussion about things which could have been done differently or were confusing, I think that it didn't really affect me enjoying the movie at the time. Like it's kind of, you go away and you unpack it a bit more that you sort of think, Oh, maybe this, maybe this, but I mean, having been able to discuss as long as we have now about the movie and have different thoughts and interpretations, I think is also a plus anyway, long spiel, but I'm going to give it four stars. All right. Shaggy. Well, I'll just agree with Neb. I think he summed it up perfectly. And Originally, after watching this, I gave it four and a half. After 
further thought, and I believe after watching the second time, I'm probably going to put it to a four. On to Lil Silky. <laughs> um, yeah, this is the big budget cinema I want to watch. It's exciting. The sets are amazing. Sure, the plot doesn't really make sense, a bit too convoluted, but it's visual storytelling at the end of the day. I'm giving this a four. All right. Um, yeah, same sort of thing. Love the cinema. I There's a lot to, to really love and it, it just immerses you. I love the opera scene. I love the Oslo way that played out and you watch that twice. The fight reversed back and forth was really cool. It's really like a wow moment. There's so much conversational value from watching a Nolan film that you can't underrate. Um, in the negative, I just think that the, universe, the, the rules weren't as really good as maybe Inception or some of his other films. The emotional beat wasn't as good. And there was just kind of a chunk in the middle where I was waiting for the kind of time travel thing to come into play where I wasn't as invested in it. So for me, I'm really glad I saw it. Really glad it's made. I look forward to seeing his movies next time as well. So I'm going to give it a three and a half. Oh. Oh. <laughs> wow. All right. It's been a trendsetter. All <laughs> <laughs> um, right. So that's, that's very much the timer and all we have time for. Yes. I do have to say, all this, all this talk about convoluted plot and complexity makes me think that it would have been good if we had have done a podcast and I'm thinking of ending things when it came out. Funny you say that. I happened to come across a Freeport the other day and as all Freeports have followed the same construction guidelines, it has a time travel machine. What do you say on an off chance? How about we, we cut Neb and we go back in time... <laughs> And we Neb review. got hit by a stray reverse bullet. That's all right. I, I have other business in the past anyway. I'll catch you next time. Yeah. How about all we right. go back and we review that? Go back to September 2020 and we review that film. Cool. I'll what see you, you there, say, boys. Bro? All right. I will see you there. Do you have any present, any, any present time plugs though? Just real quick. <laughs> Before uh, we go back. The, well, wait. Well, you mean something to tell our past selves? <laughs> yeah, I'll just tell just you were about to witness one of the greatest Collingwood finals victories and one of the most disappointing <laughs> within the space of two weeks. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna happily rewatch the Cats first half, but I might jump back in the time machine again and watch the first half twice. <laughs> and the final thing I'd tell my future my past self is follow me on uh, Letterbox L A L S A L K Y. <laughs> yep, follow I'm Good Brother on Instagram. Follow Rob's Letterbox or Hess Royale on YouTube. Hess Royale on YouTube, please. Thanks, Legend. And Neb, I don't think you have anything yet, but yeah, maybe... Yeah, might have to do something in the future, then come back and add it to here. And plug it. <laughs> All right, boys. This has been another classic. Thank you so much. We'll, we'll see you next week. Another classic or a fresh one. If we knew...